Movies entertain. Entertainment leads to emotions. Those emotions connect us to our enjoyment of film. And that is why we exist, to focus more on the emotional connection than the technical merit. Because every movie makes us feel something. Hello, faithful listeners, first-timers, and anyone else I didn't get in that sentence. Welcome to another episode here at Feelin' Film. I'm Patch, and with me, ready to fight the guy who used to beat me up in kindergarten, is my best friend and co-host, Aaron. Boston. Boston. <laughs> I don't know why I said that, but I feel like... Because that's really, you know... That's it's better than the out. alternative word I was thinking of. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> the NSFW word. Yes. <laughs> the one that we can't use on this podcast, but gets used quite a lot in this movie. Yeah. Almost our one word takeaway is just by yeah. default. Yep. <laughs> the only word takeaway. <laughs> right. Well, if you haven't guessed by now, this week we are continuing our tribute to Matt Damon by talking about the 1997 Oscar nominated film Goodwill Hunting. Before we get into our deep dive discussion, let's open up, as always, with our one word takeaways. Aaron, why don't you start us off? I have like a lot of them. <laughs> So, sorry. Keep it clean, sir. Keep no, it clean. I mean, I'm not using that one. But, like, I'm going to start with math because my biggest takeaway from watching this movie is that Matt Damon was able to survive on Mars 20 years later because of what he accomplished in this film. And so I think it's incredible that we accidentally covered these two movies back to back because math, man, math. What is it with Matt Damon and math? I don't know. I don't get it. Oh, well, but... he well, and and obviously that math plays into his career uh, working for Shelby American or being part of Shelby American, as we saw in this movie. Early on, he was wearing his Shelby American Cobra jacket, foreshadowing that both math and a love for cars was going to further his career, making the great car for the Le Mans race. Yeah, apparently so. I don't know, but yeah, but yeah. Like lots of math in the last two weeks. Lots man. Of math. I'm ready to be done with math. I don't like it. And it's okay in the movies, but yeah, let's no, so we're not covering a beautiful mind next week. No, I was going to say that's not coming <laughs> up next. <laughs> well, the other word that I came up with is walls and I don't have a ton like insightful to say about this, but I think that the biggest theme idea for me watching this, and this was my first viewing in probably 20 years, I would say, I haven't seen this since I was coming off of being a teenager, like right around the time it came out. So very different than I remembered it. And, and actually, I didn't remember much about it at all. But it was really easy for me to focus in on the walls that people put up, and specifically Will and Sean, because they're both struggling with this. Will not wanting to allow people to get close to him, and so he's acting in a manner that always keeps people at a distance, which is a very natural thing very common thing it's something that i think many many people can relate to and either either you've done it yourself or you've known somebody who does it one of the two if not both it's pretty much a given and then sean who has kind of this undealt with pain in his life that is also informing the way that he interacts with people such as will and ultimately the conversations and the relationship that they have becoming this thing that allows him to process to kind of break his walls down. So walls was kind of where I, I came to, you know, I, I don't love the word therapy. I thought about using the word therapy, but I don't like that word really. 
because of the connotation that comes with it, but just the way that these characters are pushing each other not to necessarily do things differently in their lives, but really they're just pushing each other to think and feel more freely and honestly. And I, that was something I really enjoyed quite a bit. And lastly, because I don't know where else we're going to talk about it. I just want to mention that it is so cool and so much fun to see these guys in this beginning of their career with Matt and Ben and Casey and Cole Hauser, their buddy from back home. Shout out Carter Verone and Too Fast, Too Furious. You know, it was so cool. And I just, it, I imagine this is what they actually lived like when they were hanging out in Boston, you know, minus maybe being a super math nerd. But like, otherwise, I felt like when they were in the car driving around talking about like sandwich layaway, I felt like that was just a natural conversation that they probably actually had amongst them. And that that sort of authentic writing is why this movie got so much acclaim for its script and what launched these guys into ultimately superstardom three of the four which is incredible so yeah there's my one word takeaway tangent filled opening it's very good one word takeaway tangent filled opening all that i'm gonna give aces to that so good for you for me vulnerable was the winner that came out on top in terms of my one word takeaway i also had a second a close second which is broken and the fact is everybody everybody in this movie is broken. I mean, nobody is perfect. Nobody has it all together. And I think that's what makes Goodwill Hunting feel authentic. I don't really know what was going on in 1997 in terms of the movies. I didn't do a lot of research, but this one seemed to come at a place where I remember specifically, I was starting college. I was a freshman. I was very vulnerable because I didn't know what this was going to be like. Even going to a small university with only about 2000 students, very conservative, it was still the college experience. And so I remember going to this movie with a friend of mine at the time, and she came back just touting this whole, I wonder who my soulmate's going to be. I wonder who my soulmate is. There were so many ideas of questions that came from a movie like this. And it was the first time that I remember feeling like, wow, this feels very real. This is a serious movie. This is one that isn't your typical comedy that you latched onto. This was different for me. And I think what made it successful was the fact that these characters were very vulnerable as we got to see them. They had the walls, but there was a level of vulnerability that was unpacked through conversations, through certain scenes, through conflict and all of this different stuff that I think allowed the average moviegoer to connect in some way to one of them. It wasn't a large cast. It was very down to earth. There was nothing spectacular there were no crazy subplots i remember reading a little bit about the script and one of the initial drafts had this subplot where the nsa was recruiting matt Dave was what? recruiting will wow and that would have completely just derailed i think the tone of the movie and i'm glad it got taken out it was kind of alluded to in that great conversation that monologue that he has about why he wouldn't want to work for the nsa but overall, I think that's what makes it feel authentic. I think it's what keeps it pretty valid even today. So many years later, it doesn't feel like, oh, those were issues back then. They don't really matter now. No, absolutely they do. The things that come up in this movie surrounding Will, Sean, Skyler, all of these main characters, how he interacts with them, how they interact with him, really make this movie 
feel timeless in a lot of ways. And I was talking to you offline about this. I'd love to be able to let this be a launching point for conversations with people in my life saying, hey, this has a lot of merit. I mean, we're in a world where counseling is a thing that is necessary. My wife and I, I confess, we've been seeing a therapist for two or three years. It's been really great to be able to have that component in our lives. And with the world as it is right now, I think it's just as important not to tout therapy, but to tout the idea that we're broken. We're broken people. And that vulnerability, as scary as it is, can lead to some pretty amazing things, as we'll talk a little bit more about as we get into the uh, the discussion. So with that being said, this is when it gets spoilerific. I encourage you guys to check out Goodwill Hunting for the podcast, obviously, but also for your own personal entertainment because it's really, really good. I think it's on Amazon Prime. I remember seeing it floating around. I don't know if it's for rent or if it's free, but it's available, obviously, on demand at some place. So find yourself a copy, get it from the library, whatever, check it out. Enjoy the conversation from here on out. So with that being said, here we go. Aaron, one of the things that I think really drew me to this was that the title of the movie really got us into the place where we were going to be for the entire film, Will Hunting's world. It's all about him. To an extent, he is the driver of the entire narrative. And it's fair to say that the movie opens up showing us through a few comedic moments and a few kind of, oh, wow, moments, particularly beating up a guy who used to beat him up in kindergarten. (laughs) He's held this grudge for so long. But it's fair to say that he has this deep-seated dissatisfaction with his life. And he might like to think that he's totally fulfilled by his life with this life of drinking and fighting. But if that were the case, he wouldn't spend his evenings reading about economics and solving insanely complicated math problems in the hallways of MIT. So it really opens up this question, what is that source of his dissatisfaction? And I'm going to ask you to play naive a little bit because obviously seeing the movie, we kind of get that answer. But as the movie opens up, what kind of comes to your mind when you think about why he might be dissatisfied? Is it just because he lives in Boston? Because I know that can be an issue for a lot of people. (laughs) Sorry, Boston. I'm just kidding. Well, I'm going to be honest with you. When I saw this question in the notes, I actually wrote down for myself, is Will dissatisfied? Because I don't know that I think he is dissatisfied in many ways. I think we pretty quickly come to find out that Will is either dissatisfied or yearning for a relationship that he desires a relationship with a significant other because of the way that he really kind of gravitates towards Skylar and finds that to be an appealing thing to get into, right? But I don't know that he is dissatisfied. I guess it's hard for me to say he's dissatisfied because I never see him really complaining about the way he's living. Now, I would say he's living a life that is very free of... I don't know, poor decision-making and free of having to worry about his future for better and worse. You know, if you're going to go up and beat up the kid who, you know, bullied you in kindergarten, there's something to be understood about that. Honestly, like no matter what your 
status in life is, whether you're satisfied with life or not. There's something to be said about wanting revenge in that manner. I think where we see here is, and what we come to find out, the, the real telling conversation for me is actually when he's in court and he's defending himself and the judge is going through his rap sheet and he's like talking about all of these things because that's the only real indication I think we get in the movie about maybe what Will's past has been like uh, versus where we see him when we catch up with him as a character. And if we go by that, then I would say there is probably a sense of dissatisfaction that I would personally assume because of his actions constantly getting into trouble. I'm no therapist, so I can't say for sure. I'm no psychologist. But if a person is in general making poor choice after poor choice after poor choice, there is clearly something missing in their lives. And it was almost as if I, I read that section, Patrick, kind of like maybe Will sort of subconsciously, if not consciously, got into these situations and trouble almost because he wanted to be able to represent himself and get himself out of it with his brain. Like he subconsciously is looking for ways to exercise his intellect because he doesn't exercise his intellect with his friends. It's not part of his daily life. So I guess all this roundabout way to get to your question and say, I guess if he's dissatisfied, I think that that's where it lies in looking for ways to express the amazing amount of intelligence he has where it doesn't feel like it's also putting down the people that he cares about the most, but simultaneously doesn't make him feel like he's selling out in some way. I think there's a lot that you're saying that makes total sense. And I would say dissatisfaction is probably not the word, maybe more discontent in terms of not seeing himself as a math genius, but as seeing someone who doesn't want to put in the work that leads to a terrible payoff or whatever. Clearly, he doesn't care about his living situation. He doesn't care about being rich. He doesn't care about being educated. He just does it, and that's just who he is. There is a component, though, where if you're continuing to get in trouble with the law, there seems to be a little bit of discontent if you're constantly moving from one offense to another to another. And eventually you get living into this world where it's jail or not, or it's this or that will seems to come across as someone who is a tad troubled at the very beginning, because when we think of someone who's a math genius, we gravitate towards what a professor would. Hey, let's take, this guy and let's make him successful and i think lambo represents a piece of who we are we see this gift that's not being used or it's at least being used in a limited capacity and it feels to us like it's a waste and i think what happens is maybe we project that discontent onto him when in actuality he's not i think he is personally because i i feel like there has to be some consistency in his life with in terms of work or in terms of just living. And I feel like he's going from thing to thing and living day by day. Maybe that's for him. 
just fine. And so, I, I mean, yeah, you're you're hitting on exactly where I was coming from, which is yeah, are we projecting? What are we Lambo? Are we mm-hmm. in this situation saying because you're intelligent, Will, you should act this way? Sure. You should have a steady job and a girlfriend and a great paying job where you're utilizing your brain to better the world because you've been given this gift. Yeah. And who are we to say that? Like, what is our place to project that onto a person? And I think that that's one of the cool things about this movie is that it makes you consider that. That's what Lambo's character really does is bring that out in us because it's played in the movie for almost as a villain. Mm -hmm. We see him kind of portrayed that way, but when we step back and look at it and go, well, that's exactly what I would expect too. We start to understand those kind of biases and it it is, it's such a deep rooted thing where it doesn't mean it's wrong to want that for someone. It doesn't mean that it's, you know, poor choice to want to help provide them the opportunity to make these decisions and to try things and be in a place where they can have the information necessary and the ability to go whichever way they want to go. And I think that's ultimately what Lambo is probably really wanting for Will in the end. But yeah, it's, it's hard to kind of decide what Will feels unless Will tells us what Will feels and Will doesn't talk. So (laughs) it's kind of hard to get to that. Yeah. And as an audience, we have to kind of make an assumption for our own benefit to kind of define him, at least at the very beginning of who this guy is. And what I pulled from the opening segments here is that as much as he's wicked smart, he understands the world around him. He understands that the gift he has is just that it's a gift. And in choosing to kind of hide it and choosing to solve proofs in the middle of the night it's almost a recognition of saying he's pushing that part of the world away he doesn't want that so there's almost a a conscious effort not to get into that world and that's what i think makes the whole movie so great is that by accident or design he had he sort of forced into that through getting caught through even his conversation with Skylar meeting her and how she starts to kind of move some things in him. He sees the world outside of his. And he says at the very beginning, not literally, but what I'm inferring, that's not the life I want. I, and it's not just that I don't want that life, but I'm going to do everything I can to make sure that I don't get that. And that kindergarten revenge fight i think is a great example of it because look at this he was at a kid's baseball game with his buddies sees this guy and what four hours later three hours later he sees him on the street and that's when he decides to go attack him it doesn't make sense to the normal person in fact casey affleck's character says why didn't we do this back then now we got snacks why are we doing this now and I'm thinking, yeah, I mean, as much as I don't want them to, you know, beat these guys to death, it makes sense to say, wh- why now? What is it about now that makes it special for you or makes it important? And I think that informs me as an audience member to look at him and say, something's not right. 
he could badmouth the guy, but you'd think he'd have enough control to say, if I see him on the street, I'm just going to ignore him. No, I don't know. It, it's very, it's weird to see that because we look at a guy and we see that he has these gifts, but I feel like he looks at those gifts as almost like a burden. Like, I don't want people to know about that because it's going to force me to change. It's going to force me to move into a world that I'm not comfortable with. Because and, that's the only way he knows that world. I think that's the problem yeah. is he only sees that world through the eyes and, you know, the experiences that he's had so far in the world. And it tells him that if you're smart, this is what it's going to look like. And I wouldn't want any part of that either, Patrick. So I don't blame him. <laughs> and ironically, the world that he knows is probably the most naive character trait about him because he yes. doesn't know that world. Right. He doesn't see the gray. He sees the black and white. And that's what's really beautiful about this. It takes those relationships to really allow him to be influenced and to influence. And Aaron, this, I think, is the heart of the movie is these relationships that get built as a result of the path that he's on, how he affects them, how they affect him, how they affect each other as a result of having him part of their world. So I, what I want to do is just kind of spend the rest of our conversation talking a little bit about each one of these, because I think this is what makes the movie successful is how these characters develop each other how the walls get broken down reciprocally how that vulnerability really starts to come about and essentially how these broken people begin to heal in some ways maybe not so much in others and i want to start by talking about will and sean because obviously they're at the heart of this sean played by the late robin williams who i i told you there are a number of fantastic roles that robin williams has played. And the thing about him as an actor is that he is so wide in terms of his talent. Comedy, drama, you name it. The ability to kind of incorporate both of those at times is pretty fantastic. And to see him in a role like this that is very subdued, that doesn't have a lot of action, and there's not a lot of like laugh out loud moments where he's just using his impressions that I think are such a great part of his character of his personality it says so much about how he as an actor can tap into that more reserved nature i love the costume design i love the way that he's made to look kind of beaten up a little bit worn he has the sweater and the collar's not quite so great he's got the beard that's got some gray in it he's very much an old man in, wow. in, in the case wow wow I mean, I got Sorry. gray in my beard. Does that make me so old, do I. I my mean, old look, man? I mean, yeah. <laughs> wow. I'm... Well, according to Ali Sheedy in War Games, 41 is old. So. That's true. I guess we're old. Shame. I guess we're old. But anyway, my point being that the way that we see Sean, see Sean as a character, he's seasoned. He's very much, without even talking, we know that he's been through a lot. And there's a subtlety that comes out in his relationship with Will that we start to get more of that unpacked. And I wonder what specifically, if there's one thing or if there's a number of things that allow Sean to be able to connect with Will more so than these other therapists. And it's really funny to watch the therapy, the therapist that kind of audition for this role leading up to Sean and the methods that they use and whatnot. 
did you notice anything specific or did you pull out anything specific from their relationship that allowed Sean the ability to connect with Will in a way that nobody else would? Well, yeah. I mean, there's a couple things. One, that's one of my, I think, most enjoyable parts of the whole film. For me, that section, it's probably the funniest part of the movie. I, I laughed really hard when he sits down with that first therapist and tells him he already read his book and then starts calling him gay and explaining to him why he's gay and he's not in the closet. <laughs> and the guy is just getting so rattled and he's totally offended. Right. And, you know, I get it. Makes sense. Like you wouldn't want to sit down and have someone treat you like that if you were there to talk to them. But what we see in those two trials, that first, you know, very, I would say, stereotypical therapist is what that first one is. He's the guy that you typically see sitting behind a desk, you know, nice suit, you know, looking clean and just very, so tell me about your life, Will. You know, like it's it's just the typical or stereotypical therapist. And there was no way Will was ever going to relate to that. And then that second one kind of gives you the fun off the wall option with the hypnotist and this kind of like you know different kind of methods to try and crack into the code of getting to the heart of who you are and so that was i think played for some humor there as well and then we actually find out that it's the fifth not the third but we don't get to see two of them so sean is the fifth one he's come to so when he walks in and immediately starts challenging Sean in the same way we've seen him challenge the other two. We are immediately under the impression that he's done this four times. And the difference is that Sean doesn't take any crap from him, but also throws it back at him. And that's, that's the thing. I think that, you know, when he insults his wife and Sean's like, you're not going to do that. He doesn't say, at least he doesn't start off by saying, get out, I'm done with you. He throws it back. And what really stuck out to me, even in the beginning of the first therapy session and then throughout his visits and conversations with Sean, is Will would deflect, deflect, deflect and ask questions. Sean would not answer them and would turn them back and would continually just push it back to Will. And he would turn anything that Will said and he would use it to try and get something out of Will. And it became this like battle of the wits and attrition and who's going to blink first instead of somebody intimidating the other person to the point where they're frustrated and don't want to deal with it. Sean wasn't going to back down either. And I think part of it, to be honest with you, really comes because of him attacking Will physically. I think when he goes and grabs him by the throat and puts him against the wall, right or wrong, and I'm going to say probably wrong, but there is, I think, a respect, an understanding. Sean goes to a different place in Will's head at that moment because Will is like, whoa, you know, I have always been in control and this person is not going to allow me to be in control. 
And it doesn't mean he's ready to open up. It doesn't mean he wants to even stay there. But I think that that moment specifically combined with their first big conversation and the way that Sean breaks him down through this incredible monologue and says, hey, buddy, look, this is why you are who you are. I think that that gives Will two different types of respect for him that he's never experienced before in a relationship, probably in his entire life. And so that's what allows him to eventually to start making those inroads, right? To begin to gain any little piece of trust and respect. I think it starts with that respect. And ultimately, you know, it, it blossoms into loyalty and trust and friendship and all these other things. But that's that respect is what Will just doesn't have for anybody. And Sean actually earns it from him. Yeah, for sure. Looking at that opening conversation inside Sean's office says a lot. One of the things that I saw more closely is the the way the set was designed. In normal circumstances, when we're not in a pandemic, my wife and I would normally go to our therapist's office. And the thing that the thing that Will does is the thing that I do. I look around at the books. And as we're talking, if we go session after session after session, you start noticing things. You start noticing that the phone has a blinking red light. Like, does he ever answer his messages? Uh, you start noticing other psychology books or what kinds of books are on the shelf. That's exactly what happens. Sh uh, Sean is experiencing exactly what I think a therapist experiences with new patients. And what makes that so wonderful, Aaron, is that that is a level of vulnerability. It's a messy office. There's a lot going on in there. It also shows how observant Will is and how, in a similar way to how a certain character breaks down a room in order to confuse a cop in a certain movie that I will not divulge because that would be a huge spoiler what i think will does effectively is he tries to catch some context but only from a limited perspective he starts out by saying did you get these books like individual or did they just you kind of send away for a a therapist box of, of books whatever he so he's, he's already starting the conversation by saying you know i had to read these books i said oh did you read these books? And, it, and it's right. You're right. It is a conversation of wits. Every time Will says something, Sean goes, you like art? You like books? What have you read? And I think it's a way to size him up, for Sean to size Will up and say, who's going to talk? Who's going to talk, not first, but also who's going to talk significantly? That echoes later when... After that monologue, there's that great scene where they are sitting in silence for an hour. <laughs> and Lambo says, you guys didn't talk? He goes, no, not at all. And I'm not going to be the one to speak first. It has to be him. That's really significant, Aaron, because that's the first layer of vulnerability that has to exist. Because if if Sean starts the conversation, Will's going to latch onto that and then immediately turn it in some other way. 
And I think in those moments, what we see is that over time, what started there is a budding friendship of trust, a place where Will can feel like he's not being judged, he's being listened to, where he's not having his issues worked out, he's just having a conversation and he's getting to say things that he normally wouldn't. I also like the fact that throughout their whole relationship, there were little to no moments where we heard therapy language, where it felt like a conversation, because that's what he needed. And I think Sean knew that. Being from Southie, having that kind of connection, Sean knew the kind of person that Will could be. And for both of them, Aaron, it's one of those things where they're both trying to figure out each other throughout this relationship, going beyond just books or beyond just the 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 book smarts that they both have. I also think it's great that Sean hasn't won a Pulitzer Prize. He's not this accredited guy. He's a he's a therapist that teaches at a community college. I mean, he is set up to be this person that is really unassuming. I think that's appealing to Will because he doesn't have to show off his medal. He doesn't have to show off his credentials. This is who you get, Will. And for Sean, I think one of the most amazing things is that after he chokeholds the guy, Lambo says, I will understand if you don't want to do this and goes, have him in my office Thursday at this time. And that starts what will be my connecting point. Spoiler alert. I'll talk more about that. But yeah, I absolutely think you're right in that there's a level of trust that gets developed. There is a battle of wits and there's a who's going to back down kind of mentality. And it's less about who wins and more about the fact that Will sees this guy as as an equal. Whereas these other guys, these other therapists, other people that he's met, the guy in the bar, are really just talking heads to him. And I think Sean shows him that that's not what he's here for. He's here to talk to Will. He's here to figure out things. And I think for me, I would have probably been satisfied if Will didn't get better. Because I don't know that that was the goal of Sean was to get him better, but to get him started on a path of understanding who he really was. That starts out with that great question that he asks, what do you want? (laughs) I'm going to bring that up a little bit later, but I digress. The next relationship that stands out is obviously Will and Skylar. The introduction to their relationship is probably one of the most memorable in this movie. It's the probably most highly quoted line in the movie where he essentially just takes down this Harvard guy who's regurgitating all this head knowledge. And then he puts the icing on the cake by coming up to him afterwards and saying, Hey, you like apples? I got a number. How about them apples? And it's just, it's just wonderful. But I love seeing their relationship kind of grow from that. And the thing that stands out to me though, is the fact that he starts lying to her from the very beginning about brothers and about this life that he has his parents and these things where 
I start seeing the beginnings of a guy who can't open up, who is afraid to open up in this relationship with her. And it makes me wonder why he can't. And so I start thinking, well, maybe there's a past here. Maybe there's something about having nobody, being an orphan, being abandoned, that you have to kind of recompensate for it. And I think what happens, Aaron, is he looks at her as this Harvard girl with her $125,000 education as intimidating. And he feels like he has to compete. But it's kind of ironic because he's touted himself as someone who doesn't care about that kind of stuff. Yet, he feels like he has to care a little bit about it in order to impress her. And she is not that at all. She's very much about, this is a guy that I'm attracted to. He's a guy that I can have my mouth full of hamburger and talk to and him not be grossed out by it. And I find it fascinating that when we look at her relationship with him, She's being nothing but honest, yet he fe still feels – I think he feels intimidated by that honesty. And I think that's probably why he starts lying to her and telling her about all these relatives, all these brothers that he has when in actuality he doesn't. So at what point do you think he realizes this and that he's actually scared of being in love with her? Because that there's a moment there where – he essentially breaks it off. It, be, it became one of my connecting point contenders is when they're having that really hard conversation mm -hmm. and not once, but twice she says she loves him and he just refuses to say that. What is it about that relationship or about her or about him that's keeping him from kind of pushing that forward? Do you think? Well, I mean, he's, he doesn't want to commit. He does. It's, I think he's just, he doesn't want to, let her down. He doesn't want to be the guy that is not perfect. No matter what Sean tells him earlier in the film, he doesn't want to be a failure and he doesn't feel like he deserves her. He feels like his past has led him to a path that makes it where she is out of his reach. I mean, that's the way they talk about her in the bar when they first meet her, you know, like he, she is, she's that girl that everybody looks at from afar not her specifically, but everybody has like that someone, whatever that is to you, that is quote unquote out of your league. And he feels that she's out of his league. And so he's, I think, always kind of waiting on the other shoe to drop. So many people in real life do this. I don't know that it has a ton to do with his background, probably does extra because of the foster background and just not having anybody that has been loyal to him in his life other than his four friends or three friends. But there are so many people that sabotage their relationships because they're afraid of letting it become serious and then falling apart. And so it's you'd rather end it when it's good before letting it get great and then lose it. And that's a very natural thing. I don't think that it's necessarily reserved to a person that has Will's background. But I think it's, you know, shown that in that light here in this film, she is awesome for sure. And the way that she doesn't care about all of these like idiosyncrasies he has, 
is a, a beautiful thing, but I think that he's just not familiar with that and he doesn't know how to handle it. It's much, it's just like talking to Sean. He doesn't know how to approach it when people genuinely want to talk about him and want to know how he feels and actually care what his answers are. Because even the sweet relationship and the loyalty between him and the three guys until the very end of the movie in his conversation with Chucky, what is everything we see between those, those guys? It's banter. It is your very typical shallow best friend stuff. And I'm going to be real honest, you know, like I've got these friends and even now today people, and I don't have a lot of friends, but like, I don't say that like a negative. I'm just saying, I have people in my life who I would in theory love to be quote unquote close friends, but repeatedly the actions always just kind of have us like never getting past that certain shallow nature of like talking about the past and those fun experiences we had or talking about video games or movies or sports and it's almost never a thing. And I don't know if it happens in girls because we're not girls, so we can't talk to this, but I know it happens in a lot of males where it's this just feeling that you can't open up to people. And so you just don't talk about your real life problems. I mean, you know, usually if you have a best friend like we do, you and I do that to each other, but you're the only male that I really do that with. And I have other friends that just don't get that. And so we don't see him experience that. And so here she comes into his life and wants to be that. I don't think he's ever been that way with anybody. So I can only imagine how scary and intimidating that is for him. And it's really hard to want to take that risk. And I mean, that's what happens at the end of the movie, right? I love the end of this film. And you, you talked about it a minute ago, but it's he doesn't necessarily quote unquote get better, whatever that means he does, but he doesn't have this miraculous change to where he becomes the professor at MIT or, you know what I mean? Like there's not like an end coda stinger of success that happens in this movie. The success is that will is willing to take a risk and to actually admit his feelings and see what the hell happens in his life. That's as far as he got Patrick. And that's not like the end. And that's the beauty of this movie is that it's not a movies about therapy and that feature this sort of counseling typically are all about like getting you to this goal, right? Where you're over the ex-wife or the trauma you're past it. And now you can move on and have a happy family and everything's going to be peaches and cream because you beat the problem and you solved your, de you know, got rid of your demons or whatever. This movie doesn't tell us any of that stuff happened. It just says this guy got to a point where he could let somebody else in, maybe a couple people, and it probably will change the way the rest of his life is going to go. We don't know what that means, but we know that he made progress. And that we know that he can now be honest and, and more open than he was. And so 
I mean, I think that it really doesn't come until the very end of the film, honestly, when he is able to feel that way about her. I think the last scene, the fact that he is driving off to go find her is when we know, <laughs> because before that, he's real resistant, man. He, he's resistant. We we can see it in his eyes how he feels. And, and that's why it's so frustrating to her, I'm sure, because she can feel it. You know, when she's when that scene you were talking about, that was like probably a number close number three connecting point for both of us. And she's leaning over him and she's she's very clearly like, come on, just say it back. Like, I know you feel it. Use the words. But he can't do it. And so the end of the film is the moment where I feel like that's him saying it. That's his actions saying, I love you too. Let's see what happens or whatever. Right. And the fact that we don't know what happens, I think, opens it up for still being his decision, not reconciliation with her, but his ability to open up and make that choice, no matter what the outcome is going to be. We had a small bit of that late in the movie just before the fight. And it's slightly adorable where he hasn't called her after that first date. And he goes to her dorm and she's playing piano. And he says, I'm sorry I didn't call. I'm sorry I didn't connect. And he's trying to get a second date with her. And she says, I can't today. I've got this, this Kim thing to do. And he doesn't even see a piece of paper. He just hears what she's doing. And then he goes to a cafe, figures it out, puts it on paper. And he goes, I couldn't wait. Gives it to her. And she goes, I need to know this stuff. He goes, well, you're not going to surgery tomorrow, are you? She goes, no. And it's the conversation later where, I don't know if it's just after that scene or if it's a couple of scenes later, but they're in a cafe, they're out, outdoor cafe. And he's trying to explain to her his brain, like how his brain works. And the analogy that he gives is talking about her playing the piano. And she goes, yeah, I like playing the piano. I dink around with it. And he goes, well, when I think about Beethoven, when he looks at a piano, he doesn't see just keys. He sees symphonies. He sees all this other stuff and he can just do it. And she goes, so you can play piano? He goes, no, I can't play piano worth a lick. I can't do this. I can't do that. But when it comes to math, that's how my brain works. I can just see it. And to hear him talk like that, I think that's a moment of vulnerability. It's not arrogant. He's not saying it's easy for me. He's If he's saying it's easy for me, he's saying it almost as if it's a curse, that it separates me from normal people. And so we start to see hints of him kind of understanding himself and not looking at his gift as that, but really more as a burden. And that really plays into his relationship with Lambo. Lambo brings him in to work these theorems. You see this steady relationship with his assistant kind of get <laughs> strained because he's not the smartest guy in the room anymore. And neither is Lambo at this point. And there's a moment, Aaron, where will I think it's after Skylar's fight with him. He solves this proof, gives it to Lambo, and Lambo is kind of looking it over like a professor should. And he goes, mm -hmm, this is interesting. I noticed you did this. Would you consider And even before he has to finish, Will says, it's right. And he starts walking away, and it starts this whole conversation about Lambo getting real about how he feels. He says, essentially, I'm envious. 
of you. I'm envious of the fact that you're so much smarter than me. And Will confirms that. He says, I'm sorry that this comes naturally. I'm sorry. Yes, this is easy for me. Do you know how easy this is? And Lambo feels this guilt. He feels a sense of, man, I want this. And even a Fields medal isn't enough to make me feel the way that I'm feeling right now, where there's a guy that is 15, 20 years younger than me who does this like it's algebra or basic addition and subtraction that I can't get. And the scene ends with him grabbing the paper, walking away, and then burning it. And holding it up, dropping it on the floor, and Lambo comes over and starts blowing on it. And in that moment, the nonverbal communication there says, wow, Lambo cares about the prize. He doesn't care about the one who's giving it to him or the one who's helping him with it. He cares more about the prize. And he says something really interesting. He says, I'm always, I was always, I was, I'm jealous of you. I'm jealous of what you are and, and how smart you are. And Will leaves, closes the door, and he finishes his thought and what you're giving up by who you are, essentially. And I think Lambo's learning something about himself with that relationship. He's learning that he doesn't necessarily care about Will. He cares about what Will can give him, living vicariously, kind of like that dad who sees his talented baseball son as being better than he was when he was in high school and college and pushing him and pushing him and pushing him to a point where that's not his son anymore. That's a project. That's someone who absolutely is a means to an end. And by the, by the end of that arc, I almost wonder what is Lambeau's value? I mean, his education is very much one that was earned a lot of hard work versus wills that came from, you know, $125 education through all these books that he read. And yet Lambeau's prestige doesn't mean anything to him unless he can figure out this stuff. And so I wonder why does he keep pushing Will so much, even though he sees it's not important to him? Do you think it's because he's living vicariously? Do you think he there is an element of nobility, an element of altruism where he wants will to succeed for will's own benefit or do you think it's always going to always been about him i mean all of the above i guess i mean yes the answer is yes he absolutely wants will to succeed because he thinks that will will be beneficial to the world because will is incredibly smart smarter than he is and smarter than sean is or was and I think he also is definitely, I love your analogy there about the parent and the the sports kid, because you're absolutely right. There is a huge layer of wanting to live vicariously through that, or in his case, I would say almost relive vicariously. I think it actually stems from deep-rooted feeling of inadequacy, of feeling that he won... And he can't be proud of his medal. He projects as this proud person who is, ex you know, extremely high-minded, won this great prestigious award. But in reality, what we see through his conversations with Sean and ultimately with Will 
is that he knows there were people that are smarter than him, and yet he has this award. And I think it almost gives him a feeling of unfairness. Like he doesn't necessarily think he deserves it, but he doesn't want to come out and say that (laughs) obviously because he likes the prestige that comes with it. But when he has that conversation with Sean at the very end where he's talking about, he's like, you were smarter than me. Like you should have these. And Sean, especially because Sean says, I don't care. Like I don't give a rat's butt about the award, but the award mattered to Lambo, And, you know, Patrick, this is the thing. Not everybody has to have the same goals in life. Some people care about the award, and that's fine if they're not projecting that level of importance onto other people and their choices. And that's where Lambo goes wrong, is that instead of just being proud of the accomplishment he had, and simultaneously being proud of the life that Sean chose to live and be happy with and do well in, he wanted Sean to also want the thing that he wanted in order to, I guess, validate it probably in some way. And so then he's trying to go through it again now with Will because it would validate for him the his own feelings of how much this is important, if that makes sense makes him not feel bad about feeling this prestige because someone else is, is going after that too. And someone else is gaining that. And he's getting a little bit extra prestige again, because he's bringing this to the world. I'm sure that there is some level of like wanting to be the guy that found him. Right. He never says that. I don't think it's, I don't think of him as a villain. I don't think it's like a, a very insidious thing that he's trying to do. I really do believe it. Like you said, altruistic. I believe it comes from a place of truly believing Will's mind will benefit more people across the world in ways that others never would be able to do. And it is truly a waste if he doesn't do that. So I think he's coming from a good place. His view of the end game of what Will can bring completely dehumanizes Will as a person and Will's individualistic choices in his own life. And that's his problem. You know, I I love, though, I love the end between he and Will and the way in which they reconcile. He and Sean, you mean? No. Will and Lambo. Will and Lambo. Their last moment is a reconciliation of. He walks in to the room after Sean and Will have already kind of had their breakdown. And he just says, he says like, I, and, and Will just goes, I know me too. Like neither one of them says the words, I'm sorry, but they look at each other and just immediately acknowledge that they're sorry for the way that they blew up and treated each other, especially Lambo. Cause his eyes go down to the ground. He's very, clearly like regretful and understands that he pushed and went too far and and will acknowledges that and will unlike will at the beginning of the film will responds by saying me too like he doesn't lambaste him he doesn't treat him like crap for it he acknowledges that he also could act better and that there is a value to that relationship where it's not worth 
like holding it to this grudge. And I like that. I thought that that was a pleasant and, and realistic ending to that kind of relationship that those two have because it's not Will suddenly becoming best friends and letting Lambo be his mentor, but it's a treating each other with respect and understanding that everything that's happened got them to this point, and now it's just time to move on. It's a mutual understanding for sure. And watching Lambo and Sean and their relationship, how it ebbs and flows throughout the movie is really interesting. It's very educational. I think what I loved most about their relationship is that they both saw what they were doing for Will as valuable, and it really was. Lambeau was trying to pull out the greatness of Will's talent and what it could be used for in a world that needed it at the expense of Will's spirit and his soul. And Sean saw that vulnerability and that fragility that was in Will, and he even confessed to Lambo. he said, you're going to break him if you continue to push. And you're right, in a lot of ways, you could see Lambo as the enemy, but that's not the case. Lambo wanted the destination. Sean was more focused on the journey. Both are very important. Both influence one another. And I think that had the component of Lambeau's relationship with Will not existed, there could have been an altered path where Will just completely gives up on his genius. The end of the film alludes to that, but I don't think he gives up on it. I think he just prioritizes something more than something else because he ends up taking the job. Now, he ends up quitting the job, but his ability or his desire to go in and say yeah i'm not sending my liaison in the form of of chucky and that says a lot about the fact that he respects his talent but he also recognizes that his talent does not completely make him who he is that it's part of him and it's significant and i think that the relationship that he has with those sean and lambo helped kind of inform both of them in their relationship with each other because it was fractured too. From the very beginning, that subtle introduction that Sean gives to his class about Lambeau, we're in the presence of greatness. And it's very much a Robin Williams kind of thing to say in the way he says it. But you kind of find out later that it's not really something that he's proud of. He's not proud to know Lambeau as a successful guy. He's the guy who used to wet himself freshman year as his roommate. I mean, he knows him intimately. And what I, I thought was really interesting was watching that conflict play out in that big conversation near the end of the film where they're yelling at one another. And I'm like, neither of you guys is right. Neither of you guys is coming out looking really good at this point. You both got your issues. And there is that reconciliation. And it's very appealing because it doesn't feel manufactured. It feels like, okay, we're finally honest about how we see each other. Doesn't mean we hate each other. It just means we want different things. We've always wanted different things. And that's okay. Some people want the trophy. Some people want the competition. And some people 
want to be married and stay by their love's side, even through cancer, that kind of thing. So it doesn't diminish what Lambo did or who he is. It just puts into perspective the fact that people choose different paths. And as long as others can respect that, I think that it makes people more valuable. And that really is what kind of bleeds into the end of the movie and why, as you've alluded to several times, the, the ending is so beautiful because what we see is two parts of will. We see the mind and we see the heart and the movie could have, and I know it intentionally didn't, but it could have left us with that walking in to the interview and obviously getting the job and then credits roll. But instead we get the car being gifted to him for his 21st birthday, which I think is just great, by the way. <laughs> and then we see the last few moments of him writing this note and giving it to Sean, putting it in his, uh, in his mailbox and then driving off uh, with that great line, I got to go see about a girl. You know, tell Lambo, I'm sorry, I had to go see about a girl. And I think I read that the last line by Robin Williams is one of Matt Damon's favorite. I don't know if it was ad-libbed or if it was scripted, but when he says, he stole my line, whatever. And then the credits roll. But it made me ask the question that Sean was asking. What do you want? And I think I could say that Will wanted the girl, but I don't think that's the right answer. I think the answer that I came up with is Will wanted to be satisfied in his own skin, satisfied with being able to follow both his head and his heart when it felt right to him. Was it wrong for him to leave the job? Maybe morally. And for Lambo, yeah, it probably left him in a lurch. But because we don't know if he and Skylar got together, that's not the point, Aaron. The point is that he was open enough to make that choice and to eventually maybe make the choice to latch on somewhere else and use his math skills. Maybe he becomes a professor or maybe he becomes an astronaut and goes to Mars. You know, we never know. But the fact is, Will is a guy at this point by the end of the movie that he was not at the beginning, which is open to possibility, open to hurt, open to vulnerability, but still broken. I mean, he's not a perfect guy. And I think that's why this movie lands so well for me is that we we get a less messy ending. <laughs> we don't get the bow tie or the, the bow on the on the present, but we get something that feels satisfying because I think all of us are that way. We're at points in our lives where we love the single life and then we find that girl and then we decide that we're going to give that up. One of the great scenes in the movie is where <laughs> where Sean is telling Will about game six of the World Series and how excited, you know, they're, they're kind of walking through it together. They're using the office as a diamond. And at the end, it's great. Cody goes, so were you there? Did you storm the field? No, I was, I was at a bar hanging out with my future wife. And he's like, what? Sean made a choice, man. Sean made a choice and he didn't regret it. And that's the other thing that I think really stands out is that it's the one moment in the movie where I feel like Will is not making a choice. He's making a choice that he doesn't regret, that he feels confident in, not knowing what the outcome is going to be. 
Yeah, I was going to say, Everything... we can't actually say he's making a choice he's not going to regret because that's a future thing. But sure. He's... But every choice that he makes, the way he talks to people throughout the movie, he always knows what the answer is going to be. He knows going into that conversation with that Harvard guy, based on what he's hearing, he has a comeback for it. He's going to slam this guy. He knows it. There's no... Or he's going to get into a fight to settle it. Right. This, this is the unknown. Yep. This is the unknown, but his willingness to make that choice into the unknown, I think, is what makes him different by the end of the film versus at the beginning. And that to me is a great character arc. Yep. That's, you're absolutely right. The other great ending of this movie is Casey Affleck's character, Morgan getting to move up to the passenger seat. Yes. What a great, <laughs> I, I, I know we're talking, it's, it's will, it's goodwill hunting, but I, some of my favorite little moments that make this movie special for me is just those guys interacting. Like I said, the whole sandwich layaway conversation in the beginning. And then that moment where, when Will gets out and Morgan, just the way that he gets out of the car and he is like, it's so excited and runs around the front and like gets in the front and then looks back at Cole Hauser's character, you know, like, haha, like I'm, I'm graduating now because he's gone. Uh, is that's very realistic. And then I also just really loved the conversation with Chucky and, and we don't get a lot of Ben Affleck and Matt Damon together in this movie, but this is the one scene where he's like, no, 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 no F you, you don't owe it to yourself. You owe it to me. Mm, and then he yeah. gives him that conversation and says like, listen, I've been waiting and hoping for years that I will wake up and go to your door and you won't be there because you went and you did something because you have that ability and I don't. And it's interesting because it is in some ways very similar to what Lambo is wanting for him as well. A little bit different because Lambo kind of is wanting to direct where he goes, not just that he goes. Um, but that's that beauty of the relationship, you know, where he truly, this is a guy saying it to him that actually loves him and it has been loyal to him and cares about him. And when somebody who loves you, who you trust tells you that, listen, I want you to go because it's best for you. It's a whole different ball game and it means a whole lot more than for a stranger to be like, Oh, I think you need to go do such and such. Well, F you, who are you? Like, I don't care what you think, but when my best friend tells me that, I'm going to stop and it's going to mean, it's going to mean more to me. So I love that conversation toward the end. And then like the coda of how it happens and just the look on Ben Affleck's face when he is so happy to, to realize he's gone and so yeah. proud in that moment of the choice that will made. It's really cool to watch the camera kind of stay on him from the two different inside shots of the house where he, he looks and he's a little confused and then he kind of he looks down and he gives a little grin. He's not like, you know, yay, he's gone. No, it's okay. He really did it. He really did that. And when I see in agreement with what you're saying, all of these relationships that Will has, part of the thing that comes from that is a sense of getting him to understand that he is not alone from a relationship standpoint. But also because of that, his contributions from a heart standpoint, from a head standpoint, they matter and they need to be shared with other people. I think what Chucky says to him is spot on. He says, no, you're doing this for us. You got to do this for us. You cannot. This is not about you. It's about us. 
That's exactly what Lambeau's saying. It's not about you. It's not about you. Same thing that Sean says and Skylar says. I love you. To return that love is not about you. It's about me. It's about us. And I think all of those relationships, Aaron, really helped reinforce the idea that he's in order to be really happy, in order to be satisfied with his life, to have that balance of understanding this burden that he sees as his intelligence satisfactory, he has to be willing to open that up. And that's a human theme that we all deal with. I mean, in my marriage, we all, we're always working through that. Me sharing more than I, than I do and my wife being able to be vulnerable and saying, this is what scares me. Uh, even with our son, getting him to say, what is it about this that you're, that you're afraid of? And it's hard. It's hard because we don't have a lot of those relationships that are like, look, this is who I am. And I trust that you're not just going to ditch me because something feels awkward. Because we all have a breaking point. We all have that one thing or maybe those couple of things that are like, whoa, if I heard that come out of your mouth, that might make me question our friendship. And so that's a very real thing that all of us deal with. And to see it played out in a way like this, I think is a really, really neat thing. And I think it's why Goodwill Hunting stays as one of uh, my favorite dramas, uh, one of my favorite Robin Williams performances, but it's one that I can easily go back to and enjoy despite the number of F words in it, but I digress. It is a wonderful film and it has just a lot to offer in terms of conversations and thoughts. Well, with that said, let's get into our connecting points. Uh, if there's nothing else, I'll go ahead and get us started. The one scene, the two scenes that stand out that we have not talked about, that will obviously be talked about. The first one is mine, and it's the it's the bench conversation. It's just after, I guess it's the next session, where Will has been choked by Sean. There is a moment, Aaron, where I see on Robin Williams' face this sense of regret, the sense of what did I do? And then instead of getting to that scene directly, we get this moment with Sean in his apartment by himself, and we see him kind of reflecting on it. We don't know what's going through his head, but we're kind of in that moment with him. We're like, what's going on? What's he thinking about? You know, if it's me, I'm thinking, wow, I shouldn't have done that, or wow, I completely gave away my cards, you know, all of my authority, all of my respect. And then we get the bench conversation where he's essentially not tearing Will down for the sake of tearing him down, but really kind of putting it back in his face what he sees. He said, you've dissected me. You've looked around my office and you could see me and you completely nailed it but here's what I see in you and he breaks down he says if I ask you about art you can quote all these different books but you've never seen the Sistine Chapel up close and you never smelled the paint on the ceiling if I asked you about love you could quote a sonnet but you've never held your wife's hand as she's dying of cancer and doctors and you don't know the meaning of the word visiting or words visiting hours and so he goes to this kind of monologue where he says essentially will you don't know anything that 
you could read books about the rest of the world, but you've never been out of outside of Southie. You've always been here. And to me, that whole conversation, Aaron, really sparked a sense of will not agreeing with any of it, by the way. I don't think he agreed with, I don't think he wanted to receive that. But I, I see him as not fighting it and really kind of understanding that this guy might just get me. Not that he's nailing every single thing, but what he's saying is true. I know a lot, but do I really know a lot? And it starts this whole relationship where I think Sean allows himself to be inserted into Will's life, not as a father figure, not as a best friend, but as someone who Will allows to unpack him, to open him up and to say, this is what I see in you. And it's what I think sparks some of the later conversations about his relationship with his wife, with his relationship with his buddy in, in Vietnam. And all those different things, I think, sparked from that one conversation. And from a photography standpoint, I remember zeroing in on the fact that most of that monologue was a close-up of Sean, and it slowly fades back. And by the time he gets to the end, what we see in the foreground, slightly out of focus, is Will just looking straight ahead. He never moves. He never says anything. He never looks at him. And then that last line, you're moved, chief. And then he walks away. And I like that he lets Will stay there. He lets him think about it. And at that point, and obviously we know that he's going to go back, but for Sean, he doesn't. He's like, that's all I can give you. This is what I know. It's your move. And I think that had that bench conversation not happened, I don't think we would have been able to believe the genuineness of their relationship. We would have thought of it as kind of a glorified therapy relationship and nothing more. But seeing that, what we get is exposition about Sean's life. And essentially he's saying, you don't understand. You don't know. You see books and you see art and you see these things in an office that you know nothing about and you infer. And you may get 85% of it. You may get 90% of it. But you don't get that last 10%. And that last 10% matters. Almost as much as the other 90. And I think for Sean, Will's response to that by coming back allowed him to begin to open up a little bit more about his relationship with his wife. And about finding that soulmate. And being vulnerable. And for someone like Will and for an audience watching that, that was a challenge. But to see how it played out, I think was a really, really cool thing. Yeah. I mean, it's definitely the most, I think, memorable scene, even more so than the one that I chose. Cause it's a humongously long monologue for one thing that is just him rattling off in this way that you're just like, okay, wow. Got him. Like that is incredible. And he's just making point after point after point after point after point. Actually, kind of hilariously, I was thinking about this. I was like, you know, was this the plan? Because he has so much to say. So it's like, it almost feels like he planned it, right? Like he must have thought of these things ahead of time. Because if this was off the cuff, 
That's impressive. And it almost has to be off the cuff because what if this had gone any other way? But he specifically calls Will out to this spot with the intention of saying these things and then walking away. It's very clear that that was his plan, right? What if Will interrupts him? Like, what what happens if this thing could have gone so south he at any moment and just not worked, you know? But I think that it does work, obviously, and it is the most impactful, like you said, moment in the movie for Will, I think. And I think, you know, mine is probably the second one, but this is the one that the entire movie hinges on this moment, on this ability of Will to sit there like the audience for like five minutes and listen and take it in and not respond. It doesn't matter how much of it he believes or gets in that moment because he doesn't get it all in that moment. Because obviously, Sean talks about the whole, you don't need to expect her to be perfect. You just need to be perfect with each other. And it takes him a while to get to that. So he doesn't just light switch it, right? But this is, I think, a great example of what real good therapy is both ways, right? It's just processing. It's just allowing each other to talk. And sometimes, sometimes the person getting counseled just needs to listen. Sometimes the person getting counseled just needs to be free to just sit there and talk and say whatever the heck they want to say without being asked questions, without being prompted, you know, and without any expectations on what they're going to say. And so I think that that scene is phenomenal. Um, I don't have a lot to say about mine, so that's just going to piggyback on yours. But, it, you know, mine is just, it's a moment. It's a moment. It's not this big, magical, like long, piece of dialogue cinematically speaking that we can gravitate toward as an oscar moment type thing it's just simple realization for sean and will in his office at the end of the near the end of the film and sean is looking at will's file and we see him open it and it has a body with all of these bruises on it and it immediately audience usually smart enough to understand that that means we're looking at a picture of will who clearly had been abused or beaten at some point in his life. And Sean showing that perfect ability to communicate with someone in the right way, in a way that is makes them feel safe and cared for. He doesn't say to Will, hey, tell me about this thing that happened to you. Instead, he tells him about himself. And he tells him a story about how his dad beat him, which prompts Will to respond. And there's a great shot. This is one of the great shots of the movie from a cinematography standpoint, the way that the camera flashes into a very brief memory from Will of his father walking up the stairs as he's he's recounting this. It's not cheesy. It's not corny in the way where we're following him all the way down in this real dire thing and we're going to see it all happen. It's just a flashback moment that you must imagine that Will lives with all the time and sees and sees this in his head constantly, right? This replay. And as he's going through it, this is also one of the great acting moments because for Damon, he's been completely cool and just rough around the edges the whole movie. And this is the first time he really like lets that emotion start to come and he gets his tears come in and he realizes, hey, look, my foster father did the same to me. And they share this 
I guess, touching moment of ex- discussing the differences in how they chose to get whipped, you know, by these men, how they chose to get beaten. And I just love the dialogue because it's not much, but Sean just looks at him and he says, you see this, all this shit, it's not your fault. And then he says, it's not your fault. And this is when I started crying, to be honest with you, because he just keeps repeating it and watching Will go through it. Will says, immediately says, the first time Sean says, it's not your fault, Will says, I know. And Patrick, what is our response to everything, right? I know is like a gut, subconscious, triggered thing. It just comes out. I know. How was your day? Fine. It's not your fault. I know. It's not your fault. I know. And then you watch Will go through this progression of like, repeating this thing until the point where he's like actually believing it and actually understanding it. And he's not blocking it out and reflecting it with, and just saying, I know to get Sean to shut up. He's having to deal with it. And Sean does it so tenderly, so quietly moves toward him slowly as he's crying. And ultimately they get to come together and they have this hug and he is just losing it and it's it's a release for him and a moment where he apologizes for how he's acted and i think it's it's great to see him be able to accept it for the first time in his life that it's not his fault and we understand in that moment that he's been carrying this with him the whole time that he has believed it's his fault to some extent all of these actions that he's done to go back to your very first question kind of is in a way in order to inflict the reciprocal punishment on himself because he does believe he deserves it in some way. It's that thing that we see over and over in real life. Abuse hurts people forever. It, 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 is, it doesn't just hurt people in the moment. You grow up with this. It changes the entire way your life is lived, the entire way you feel about people around you, the entire way you feel about yourself. And so it's it's beautiful to see that crack and i don't want to say it's solved i mean like we talked about throughout the whole episode it's not solved it's the beauty of this film and the beauty of the ending and and the beauty of this moment is it's not a bow tie patrick he's not fixed quote unquote fixed but he's better there's a crack in the wall and instead of three guys in the car that he grew up with being the only people he trusts will now has two more people in his life that he trusts Skyler and Sean. And that's a beautiful, beautiful thing. And to me, that's what I love about this movie and its authenticity, authenticity, because that's the kind of thing that we really actually see in life being progressive for us. We don't just magically have these amazing changes to things and our entire world happen in a blink and everything about us is different. It's incremental, and this reflects that instead of the more typical Hollywood picture where it's this big magical change and we just skip over a whole bunch of time and get to an ending and don't let you actually see what happened. So I love this moment, and like you said, it's a perfect bookend for your moment because the two go hand in hand. Yeah, absolutely, and it's a the ending of the movie is a kind of a slightly beautiful mess <laughs> in that 
if there's a message that comes from this, if you simplify it, the message that comes back for me is it will get better. You will get better. And man, we need to hear that as people. People, we need to hear things will get better. They may look different, but they will get better. You will get better. You may feel different. You may, it, it's just have to get, just like Will, we have to be able to get used to or at least embrace the fact that things are changing and they can be better if we embrace those changes and we adapt to them. Will represents, I think, the honest part of who we are. Maybe not the best or the worst, but the honest part of who we are that who knows what will happen after he goes down that road to see about a girl. Maybe that girl rejects him, but I think he's better for it regardless of what the outcome is. Well, that wraps up another episode here at Feelin' Film. And since we just can't get enough of Matt Damon, and it's been a while since we had a third voice to round out the conversation, next week we will be covering the talented Mr. Ripley with our own Colesse Davis. In between, look for an FF Plus to drop where we look at the upcoming documentary Pretending I'm Superman, the Tony Hawk video game story, which releases this week. I am personally excited to talk about that as I am also looking forward to playing the upcoming re-release of the first two installments on PS4, completely remastered. Aaron, thanks for another great conversation, my friend, and we'll talk soon. Hey, everyone. Thanks again for listening. If you enjoy the show, we'd love to hear from you. You can leave us a review on iTunes or wherever you're listening. These help increase visibility for the show and grow our community of listeners like you. We also invite you to connect with us further by joining our ever-growing Facebook discussion group, a link to that is in the show notes, or you can just search on Facebook and find us that way. If you'd like to continue the conversation with me, you can follow the show on Twitter, at Film, or connect with me in the Facebook group. I'm very active in both places and would love to chat. And if you want to connect with me, you can find me at Shoeless Patch on both Facebook and Twitter. Be sure to tag me in any comments so that I'll be notified and not miss you. Once again, thank you for listening. We'll be back soon. Until then, stay positive. And keep feeling film.